me? Oh, there we go. Okay. Well, we had massive sound issue when I taught at William Tyndale at the North Campus. It was like machine gun fire going off. Doo -doo -doo -doo. Somebody was touching a server we have in the back room, and it was static electricity. So that was pretty crazy. Well, as Jeff said, I've been at GCF for 15 years. I have been married to my wife, Johanna, for 20. I have four boys, uh, ages 15 through 9. Two of them are here sitting in the back. My wife and other son are at the North Campus. Um, I think that's pretty much a, a bio about me. You know, we, we first came to GCF in 2007, and I remember showing up that very first day. There was 125 people at most at the central campus, and so we've been really excited just over the years as GCF has grown. And in 2013, my family, we went north as we planted the north campus, so that's where I've been for about, I guess, nine years now. And I'm excited to be here. I visited once, probably six months ago. So I'm really excited to be back and to be able to teach Sunday school. And I'm really excited because I get to teach Sunday school on my personal church history hero. Most seem to have Martin Luther or John Calvin. I have William Tyndale. William Tyndale is my personal church history hero. And he is a man that we must all know and learn of. Uh, the Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due. He is a man who is worthy of much honor. He's a man who exemplifies the very words he himself first translated into the English language. To fight the good fight of faith. So he's a man worthy of our time. And as Jeff said, this is a two-part series. So I'm going to speak, uh, uh, get through about half of it this week. And then next week we'll get through the second half. Also, though, if you have questions throughout, feel free to raise your hand. We can make it interactive. Um, I'll pause for questions periodically as well. I know Jeff prayed, but I'd like to pray again briefly. You can never pray too much. So please join me one more time. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people here. Lord, I pray you would bless our time this morning. I pray, Father, you'd meet with us as we gather for church in 45 to 50 minutes and that your name would be exalted and I pray right now that the name of Christ would be exalted and that God would be glorified through your servant, William Tyndale, in his life story. Anoint my words, bless my words for this congregation that they may be passionate to know Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So who is William Tyndale? If you were to ask the average person on the street, maybe ten people, my guess is two to three would have possibly heard of him, but nobody could give you something substantial about his life. And sadly, it's not that much different in the church. Most people in the church probably have heard of him, but can't really tell you anything important. I have a, a friend who uh, teaches in the Mead School District, and he's a teacher of history, and he's a Christian. And I was talking to him about William Tyndale, and he really didn't know much about William Tyndale. But there is much to know about him. In 2002, the BBC released a poll of the top 100 greatest Britons of all time. Tyndale makes that list, thankfully. But he falls in at number 26. And as great as that is, it's a little bit disappointing to me because when you see who's in the top 10, you're going to realize, ugh, you got Charles Darwin, John Lennon, Princess Diana, all in the top 10. So that tells you something a little bit about what our culture values today. I believe that he should be in the top ten, and I hope you will agree with me by the end of our time next week. So who was Tyndale? 
Tyndale was a man of many things. He was a reformer, scholar, hero, pioneer, smuggler, outlaw. He was a refugee, a prisoner, and ultimately he was a martyr. Tyndale, first and foremost, was a godly man. Tyndale loved the scriptures. He loved his personal Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was passionate to that end to be able to get the Bible into English. And that was his life's goal. He was a translator. Now, it's hard for us in our age to kind of think about this. He was put to death for translating the Bible into English. Because we live in a time where Bibles are plentiful. I did a, a recent count at my house. And between digital copies and hard copies, we have about 25 in my home. About a month ago, I ordered four Bibles for my boys, the Christian Standard Bible versions. And it was at my house in two days on Amazon Prime. So for us, this is hard to fathom. But William Tyndale paid the ultimate price so that his countrymen could have the Bible in their own language. Well, before we jump in, what do others say about William Tyndale? The great church historian John Fox, who chronicled the life of the English Protestant martyrs, calls him the Apostle of England. Brian Edwards, a biographer, says Tyndale was the Reformation in England. And an author of the, uh, in the series of the, the Banner of Truth books, he says that Tyndale was the first of the Puritans, or at least the grandfather, and he was the prophet of the English language. One more. Dr. Stephen Lawson, also a pastor, calls him the chief architect of the English Bible. He's a great man. Now before we dive in, whenever you're looking at a historical figure, it's always best to get an idea of the context or the world into which this person is born. And William Tyndale was born into a very fantastic time at the end of the 15th century. Much was happening. The Renaissance was in full swing. Men like da Vinci, Michelangelo, um, Raphael, they had just been born and were beginning to uh, do their works of arts and so forth. This was the end of what was known as the Papal Schism, where there, there were three popes between two cities, Rome and Avignon in France. It's also the time that we would think of the, medieval, the, the traditional medieval Roman Catholic era, with the popes and all of their abuses. Now in Germany, in 1440, a goldsmith by the name of Johann Gutenberg invented the first movable type printing press. Anybody know what the very first book was that was printed on the printing press? Barry. It was the Bible. And it was the Bible in Latin because that's what the Bible was at the time. It was the, uh, in Latin. Now the printing press, as most of you probably know, really revolutionized and changed modern history because so many works um, were able to be disseminated across Europe. So it was really providential that the printing press uh, happened at this time around the Protestant Reformation. Now in England, there were national and theological tensions. Uh, the 100-year war between England and France had just ended. The War of Roses, which is a series of civil wars in England, also had just ended. In addition, there was the theological tensions of a pre-Reformation movement um, known by a man named John Wycliffe and the Lollards. And we'll talk about him as we go on. 
But also very important and interesting is the English language itself was changing. At the end of the 15th century, and I had this up. This didn't go through. Yep, there we go. So I had this slide up as I had started. Um, Looks like there's a delay on my side, but yeah, we'll just get through it. Sorry about that. We'll go back to that slide. I can tell it's going to be a delay. And that's when you have to deal with little things like this. Okay. Oh, the beauty of technology. Well, I'll just talk and we'll see what happens. So, most of us think of the King James Version of the Bible as Old English. But that's incorrect. The KJV is actually considered Modern English. Old English is Beowulf. So I'm sure none of you have read it in Old English because Old English, as you can see up here, is not understandable. You may pick out a word like fodder and get that it's father, but besides that, you will not understand it because there's no fixed word order. So at the end of the 15th century was what was known as Middle English, developed out of Old English after the Norman Conquest. Um, there is fixed word order. And this is the language that John Wycliffe, who we'll talk about a bit later, um, was the language of his day. Fixed word order, much more intelligible, but still a little difficult to understand. Then comes modern English. And uh, William Tyndale is really the father of modern English. He did more for the English language than any other person that has ever lived, even more than William Shakespeare, because Shakespeare draws from William Tyndale. I'm jumping ahead a bit, but the King James Version of the Bible that came 80 years after William Tyndale is 80% word-for-word William Tyndale in the New Testament, 70% word-for-word roughly of the Old Testament books that Tyndale was able to translate. He didn't get through all of them. So he did a lot to really change the language to a, a, what's considered modern. And if you were to look at this, it's apart from the spelling, if you were to modernize the spelling, you'd be able to understand all of these words. So a very important change happening at that time. Well, William Tyndale, his early life, he was born in 1494 in the town of Gloucestershire, which is on the border of Wales, and he was born to a very wealthy family. And his family also went by the name of Hitchens, and it's likely because of the War of Roses, which was civil war, that they used that name so they weren't easily identifiable, because in a civil war, people, your neighbors, might not agree with you. And having that name Hitchens served Tyndale well throughout his life because he was a fugitive for much of it. Well, at the age of 12 in 1506, he moved to Oxford. And it's hard to believe a 12-year-old is shipped off to Oxford. But it was not uncommon in the time of Tyndale. And given that his parents were wealthy, they were able to afford to send him off to Oxford. And there he was enrolled at what is known as Magdalen Hall, which still exists today. That's a picture on the screen. And he uh, first enrolled in what would be considered preparatory grammar school at Magdalen Hall, which is attached to Oxford University. And in 1512, he earned his Bachelor's of Art. And then in 1515, he earned a Master's of Art, which allowed him to study theology. And that was Tyndale's passion, was to study the scriptures, and to know the word of God and to study theology. But he found himself not pleased with the level of education in theology. The course did not actually have 
uh, include the systematic study of Scripture as he had hoped. And so a quote of his, he says, oh, it's got that delay. Uh, I'll read it. It'll pop up there. There it is. In the universities, they have ordained that no man shall look on the Scripture until he is nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the understanding of the Scriptures. So he was not satisfied and he wanted more and this really drove him for the rest of his life. Now by the time uh, Tyndale ended his life, he had learned seven languages and was fluent in them. He was a linguist. He was a scholar. A very, very smart and intelligent man. Now from Oxford, he went on to uh, Cambridge. And we don't know exactly the dates, but somewhere between 1517 to 1519. Let's see if I can do this manually if it makes a difference. I guess it doesn't. Well, you'll just have to like see them as they pop up. So uh, he went to Cambridge in 1517 to 1519. And two very important things about his time at Cambridge. First was a man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. Who's heard of Erasmus? Figured half of you at least would have heard of Erasmus. Now Erasmus was a Dutch humanist and a Greek scholar. And uh, Erasmus had spent time teaching Greek at Cambridge from 1511 to 1512. Now this is before Tyndale was there. But he, la he left a lasting impression in the school. And most of you probably know Erasmus, most famous for assembling the first ever published New Testament in the original language, which is Greek. All the apostles and the authors of the New Testament wrote in Greek. And so Erasmus went around Europe and he gathered the best-known manuscripts in Greek and he compiled them and published in 1516 the first New Testament in Greek. He went on to produce uh, five editions. His second edition, which became known as the Novum Testamentum, is the edition that Martin Luther used to translate his German Bible called the September Bible. The third edition is what Tyndale used to eventually translate his first version into English. The next most important thing about his time at Cambridge is that Cambridge became a hotbed for Protestant ideology. Martin Luther's works in Germany had been published and printed and were circulating through Cambridge. And both scholar and student alike were devouring these books. The intellect of the day was really interested in this reform idea. So again, uh, with at Cambridge, there was really this movement to study and to debate Luther's ideas. And there's this place here that I've pictured called the White Horse Inn, a local pub of the area where about 20 scholars uh, and students would gather regularly to discuss these Lutheran ideas. We don't know for sure if Tyndale was there, but he was at Cambridge at this time. And of this 20 uh, group of people uh, that met regularly, uh, two of them became archbishops in England, seven became bishops, and eight would later become Protestant martyrs. And I put a na the names of some of the men that you might be familiar with that were both there at Cambridge and at this White Horse Inn during this time. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, 
you may have known, were both burnt at the stake side by side under the reign of Bloody Mary. Miles Coverdale was not actually martyred, but he is a close associate of Tyndale. And we're going to talk about him later today and then also tomorrow. He's very influential in the uh, history of the English Bible. You have a man named Thomas Bilney, another Thomas Cramner, who became the Archbishop of Canterbury during the time of King Henry VIII. Plays into this story a lot more over the course of today and next week. And then a man named John Frith. I want to highlight John Frith because most of us have probably never heard of him. Well, John Frith was a friend of Tyndale's, likely at their time in Cambridge and then later in life. They were friends. Well, John Frith really latched on to this Protestant ideology, and he was passionate about it. And Frith published three different works attacking purgatory and transubstantiation. Because when you begin to read the Bible for yourself, you realize there are certain Catholic teachings and doctrines that are not in the Bible. So because of this, he got in trouble. He was thrown in the Tower of London and then later in a prison called Newgate. And he refused to stop his controversial writings. And when Tyndale learned of Frith's, uh, Frith's plight, he wrote to him uh, two letters that still survive. And in one of them he says, if your pain proves to be above your strength, Pray to your father in that name, and he will ease it. Well, he, dis, he um, never recanted. He was offered uh, freedom if he would answer in the positive to two questions. Um, do you believe in purgatory, and do you believe in transubstantiation? To which he said no to both because they are not in Holy Scripture. So he was condemned as a heretic, and he was sent to the stake to be burned. And one of his uh, examiners happened to be Thomas Cramner. And what's really interesting about the story is within five to ten years, Thomas Cramner himself becomes a Protestant, an evangelical as we would think of it. And he himself is also burned at the stake under Bloody Mary shortly after Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. So some of these men, like Thomas Cramner and others, their ideology had begun to change during this time. And at some point, they had persecuted these Protestants, and later they themselves had become Protestants. Okay, after his time in Cambridge, he moves back to his hometown in Gloucestershire, where he takes on his first job. Um, he goes to work for a wealthy man by the name of Sir John Walsh where he serves as a tutor for his children, a chaplain for the family, and personal secretary for the Lord of the house. He also is a priest. I forgot to mention he was ordained a priest. But he actually never took on any monastic orders, like the Augustinian order, um, the Franciscan order. So he never took on orders, but he was a priest, and he was a preacher. And I think that's the most important thing, is he loved to preach. So... If you are passionate about something and you're a preacher, people are going to hear what you believe, hopefully. And so here he is in the small town out of Gloucestershire preaching to a local congregation and they begin to hear these Lutheran ideas. Because he really was a disciple in some ways of Martin Luther. So he was big on justification by faith, on scripture alone. And so the local clergy, the church authorities caught wind of this. And they brought Tyndale in to question him. 
And in God's providence, at this point, he was not condemned as a heretic, which allowed him to continue his work, thankfully. But nonetheless, uh, they began to watch Tyndale closely. And now there's a, a famous story that many of you have probably heard and known where Tyndale is discussing and debating with some local clergy about the authority of the Pope. And in this little debate, the clergyman gets really upset and says, we had better be without God's law than the Pope's. To which Tyndale famously uh, replies, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. If God spare me life ere many years, I would cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou does. Amen. Preach it, brother. And that is exactly, prophetically, in one sense, what Tyndale sets forth the rest of his life's mission to do. Is to get the word of God, the scriptures that he treasured, into the hands and into the minds and the hearts of his country, uh, fellow countrymen. Well, we should pause now and go back 1,100 years and ask, well, what's the problem here? Why is the Bible not in English? Why is it just in Latin in the first place? Like, why is this even an issue? And to do so, we got to look at a man in the year 382 who is known as Jerome. And Jerome was a Greek and Hebrew and Latin scholar of his day. Now, he was commissioned by the Pope at this time, the name uh, Pope Damascus, to revise and bring order to all the different Latin versions of the Bible that were in circulation. So again, as most of you probably know, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. Alexander the Great, when he conquered most of Europe in the 4th century BC, really uh, the Hellenistic movement and Greek ideology and life and language spread throughout Europe. But in Rome, Latin had always been the language. Latin was the language of the Romans. And as the Roman Empire flourished and grew, Latin is what most people were speaking. And so now Bibles often were translated into Latin. But Latin also was going through a change from old to the modern Latin. The vulgar, which means the common language, the vulgate. So Jerome is commissioned to bring order, and he compiles uh, a new version of the Latin Bible, which many years later was known as the Latin Vulgate. It still is today, which means the common language. And it's kind of ironic because for, for 1,100 years, the Bible is in Latin. It's the uh, language of the church. Everything's done in Latin, mass, baptisms, um, but over 1,100 years, what happened is people began to think that the language itself was holy. Therefore, Latin was the language of the church, and that's the only language that got the Scripture could be read in and studied and read. But again, it's ironic because the whole reason this version was put together was so that people of the time in the 4th century AD could read the Bible in Latin for themselves. So there's this big change uh, away from being able to read the Bible as a common person. Next, the problem also has to do with a man by the name of John Wycliffe. Not Wycliffe, but Wycliffe. And his followers known as the Lollards. Wycliffe is about 100 years or so before Tyndale and Martin Luther. And John Wycliffe is a pre-reformer. He really 
is uh, a man that Luther, if you look at Luther's ideas on reform, they really line up with John Wycliffe. So he's known as the morning star of the Reformation. At the dawn of the Reformation, first came Wycliffe. And Wycliffe was a priest. He was an Oxford professor. But also importantly, he was a preacher. He loved to preach God's word. And he did so often. And Wycliffe stressed the importance of personal faith in Christ over and above the merits of obedience. He said that confession to a priest was superfluous. If you could confess your sins direct to God, why do you need to confess to a priest? He ridiculed pilgrimages and prayers to saints and the sale of pardons and indulgences. And he attacked transubstantiation because he, who understood Latin, could see that in the Bible, these things weren't there. Therefore, they're false. And he saw the abuses in the church. Now, because of his preaching of reform, he was stripped of his right to be a teacher at Oxford. And in the last two years of his life, he set forth to translate from Latin, again, not the original language of the New Testament, but from Latin into English. So Wycliffe is the first to get a translation of the Bible into English, but the key is it's not from the original. And when you translate from an original to another language and then take that as your basis for another language, you're going to miss things. And later we're going to see the importance of translating from the original language. And that's what Tyndale did. But nonetheless, there was now a Bible in English, but it was heavy. It was thick. It was made of wood on the outside. And the paper was not the same paper that was later used in the printing press. So it was very expensive, hard to conceal, and hard to move. So not that many people were able to have access now, his followers were known as the Lollards, which probably means mumblers because they were preachers also. And these men were just country bumpkins that would travel through the land of England and preach to their fellow countrymen the word of God. Well, to continue on this, that was a problem for England. They were not a fan of this, um, of the Lollard movement. So in 1401, a law was passed under King Henry IV an English parliament called De Heretico Cambruendo, which means on the burning of heretics. And now you have to understand here, they had Wycliffe in mind. They had Bible translators and the Lollards in mind when this law was um, put into place. And under this law, it meant that heretics would be able to be put to death and burnt at the stake. And it was the most strictest religious censorship ever in the history of England to, to be put into place. This act, De Heretico Cumbruendo. Now because of this law, um, later, which is interesting here, in 1415 at another council, not in England, John Wycliffe was condemned on 267 heresies in, in what he had translated and taught. Now, this is many, many years after the man was dead. And 15 years later, by the Pope at that time, they commissioned Wycliffe to be dug up, his bones, 40 years after he had been dead, and then burned at the stake, his body, just his bones, because of this law. And they took his ashes and they threw him in the River Swift. And what's interesting is the River Swift connects to another river, which connects to another river, and I think to the, what's the river in London? The Time, is that how you say it? The, the Time River. And... Thank you. 
and then eventually into the Atlantic, which then eventually connects to all um, oceans. And so as the story goes, um, his Reformation ideology spread throughout all the earth, which really you see, it spread through Europe and then eventually was brought here to the Americas and the New World. Another law that created problem for Tyndale and men of his time and the Protestant reformers, in 1408, uh, the constitutions of Oxford were put into place by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And what this law said is that it's illegal to translate the Bible from Latin into another language. And here's what it says. It is a dangerous thing, as witnessed by blessed St. Jerome, to translate the text of the Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. For in the translation, the same sense is not all, always easily kept. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of the scripture into English or into any other tongue and that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. So essentially this law said it is illegal to look, to translate, to read, or to possess scripture in English. Again, Latin was considered holy, the language of learning. The surface reasons for this law were the English language was rude. Um, it was unworthy of the exalted language of God's word in Latin. If people were able to read the Bible for themselves, they may question the church authority, which really was at the heart of why. Because the deeper reason that the English, uh, the church did not want the Bible to be in English is they knew that if people read and saw, they would begin to discredit Catholic doctrine, like transubstantiation, penance. There's a lot of money to be made when you're selling indulgences, as many of you know from church history. So these were the reasons at heart of why it was illegal. And because of these things, Many were put to death at the stake by burning. A man at William Tyndale's time, when Tyndale was a boy, this man, John Bale, he was a dramatist. He says he witnessed at 11 years old the burning of a young man for possessing the Lord's Prayer in English. John Fox records seven Lollards burned in 1519 just for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. So essentially what we have is the knowledge of Scripture has been extinguished in the land of England. Nobody knows the scripture. 20,000 priests were in England at that time. And it was said none of them, maybe a handful, could even translate one sentence or one verse of the Lord's Prayer from Latin to, to English. No one knew the Bible. This becomes a problem and Tyndale saw it. He saw that his countrymen were perishing if faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God and no one's telling you the word of God, how can you be saved? If we're called to, man is not call, is called to live on not bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And if no one can know and learn scripture, then that means no one can be saved. And this was a deep pain in the heart of William Tyndale. And as he wrote here in a quote, all the prophets wrote in the mother tongue. Again, whether it was Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. Why then might they, the scriptures, not be written in the mother tongue? They say the scripture is so hard that thou could never understand it. 
they will say it cannot be translated into our tongue. They are false liars. So, picking back up with Tyndale and his story. In 1523, he leaves his hometown of Gloucestershire and he heads to London. If he's ever going to be able to translate the Bible and get this work going, it's probably going to be in London. At least that's what he thought. So he goes and he meets with the Bishop of London, a man by the name of Cuthbert Tunstall. And this guy really is the right man to go visit. Because it is possible if you get a license or permission from a church authority, and a guy, uh, the Bishop of London, would have that authority, then it would be okay for Tyndale to go ahead and continue his work. And Cuthbert Tunstall was a scholar. Um, he was a good friend of Erasmus. He was an intellect. He also, from what I've read, probably was a bit of a reformer himself in the, within the Catholic Church. Not a Protestant reformer. He saw some of the abuses. So Tyndale thought, this is the guy. So he went to him and he laid out his case. But if you see the date, 1523, just a few years before this was the Diet of Worms where uh, Martin Luther in Germany said, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. And in 1522, Luther had put out the first Bible in German in his language, and therefore there was chaos and havoc and turmoil. There was a peasant's revolt happening in Saxony at this time. And Cuthbert Tunstall thought, if that's what's happening in Germany... There is no way I'm going to allow an English version of the Bible here in my town of London because the same thing's going to happen. So he forbid uh, or forbade Tyndale to continue this work. Thankfully, again, he was not locked up, but he sent him packing. So it's at this point that Tyndale realized there's no place in all of England to do this work that I've been called to do. And therefore, at this point, William Tyndale left his home, left his country for the continent of Europe, never to return. And for the last 12 years of his life, he spent his life in hiding as a refugee, always in fear of his life, always being hunted. But he did it so that he could put the word of God again into his countrymen's language of, Engl of, of English. Definitely taking a long time. All right. Well, just keep going through it. So now what happened is when he left for the continent, we don't quite know where he went for the first year. There's a romantic version that his first year after he left, 1523 and 1524, he um, went and visited Luther in Wittenberg. That was put forth by the historian John Fox and another British uh, historian by the name of Mosley. But most historians today think that's just a romantic version and is probably not true. It would be nice to think he went and spent a year with Luther, but that's probably not the case. So when we first hear of Tyndale, we find him in that sweet-smelling city of Cologne, Germany. But since it was on a river, it probably did not smell good. But here in Cologne is where he found his first printer. Now in Germany, again, Gutenberg developed the movable printing press. So in Germany, publishing and printing was far uh, advanced techno technologically than it would have even been back in England. So Germany was really the right place to begin his work. 
Now he finds this uh, printer by the name of uh, by the uh, a man by the name of Peter Quintel, and it's risky business at this time in Germany printing any type of uh, Protestant teachings, anything that smells like Lutheranism, and it's especially uh, risky if you're going to print the English Bible. Now what happens is they're underway printing. He's already translated most of the New Testament in this year. And there's a scene at a bar where a man who was a German, he was a humanist and an anti-Lutheran by the name of Johann Cochleus. He overhears some guys at the pub in Germany talking about this new project they're undertaking. And he catches wind of it. Given that he's an anti-Protestant and Lutheran, he begins to engage. And through some more alcohol consumption, he realizes the English Bible is going to get printed. So he hatches a plan to capture Tyndale and shut this thing down. Well, thankfully, Tyndale is able to catch wind of it. And they quickly hurry and they grab all of the manuscripts. They get all the printed copies. Remember, this time you're, you're printing by, like, stamping. If you've ever watched the Gutenberg printing press, it's a pretty cool um, way of printing. So they're printing one at a time, page after page. And they're able to only get through Matthew 22, verse 12. And so that is all that, main, that remains of this very first printing of the New Testament from Greek to English. So he's able to grab it all and they escape right as the authorities ransack the house and arrest Peter Quintel. Now there's only one copy in existence today of this portion called the Matthew Fragment in a British library. And what's interesting is the very, uh, the prologue here, if you were able to read that, you would see it pretty much sounds like Luther himself. Again, Tyndale was definitely um, a disciple of Luther. And so this prologue just really smells of Lutheranism. I'm going to pause here for a minute. No one's raised their hand. Any questions so far? We've got about 10 more minutes and we'll probably break. Any questions so far on anything? I know I've thrown a lot of info. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and often we want to know like the story of when was Luther and you hear different accounts. So with Tyndale, there's no specific time. It's just kind of inherent in all of his writings. Um, probably, my guess would have been sometime Cambridge, Oxford, when he really began to study the scriptures and understood justification by faith alone as he read Luther's work. So likely in his university days, but there, there's no actual account of him having this like born-again experience. And I th Say again. No, there isn't. You know, these pictures, like this picture, we'll talk more next week, but th this picture, which is like the famous picture of him, and there's a lot of pictures you've probably seen, there was no portraits of Tyndale until after he had died. And he had purposely wanted it that way because he was a fugitive and he never wanted to be tracked down. So the paintings and the pictures of him actually even come way after he, he's dead. Like, he looks like a really old guy to me here, and he's only 44 when he died, and I'm 46. So, <laughs> like, Wow. So yeah, he kept himself in hiding and in secret as much of as much as possible. Any other questions? Feel free to raise your hand as we go. So that's known again as the Matthew fragment, the very first uh, printings of the Bible in English, translated from the Greek.
So now he makes his way after he escapes up the Rhine River and he's found in Worms, Germany. And here is history. Here is where the first full printed edition of the New Testament in English happens. Remember, Wycliffe translated from the Latin to English and a big wooden type Bible. Now we have a nice printed Bible translated from the original language of Greek into English. So this is history. It's groundbreaking. And it's done rather quickly. Yeah, Barry, go ahead. Like today in our society? Or? Yes. Yeah, like in England and throughout all of Europe. The same idea, the, the, the Catholic Church feared that if people had a copy of the Bible in their own language, they would question the doctrine of Catholicism. Yeah, for some time, sure. We're going to again see more next week, but eventually the Reformation takes hold in England, and then eventually there's an authorized version of the Bible, the King James. But before that, there's other authorized versions. And then at that point, it's no longer, at least in the country of England, feared that the common man have the Bible. It's actually a law that you should read the Bible at some point. Correct. Yeah, we're gonna get to that next week. Okay. Yeah, the Great Bible chained to the chained to a pulpit. It's because everybody wanted to read it. They weren't even paying attention to the guy preaching because nobody could read the Bible, or they finally were able to read the Bible. So everyone's in the back reading the Bible while the guy's trying to preach. So they had to chain the Bible, and then eventually they said, "You're not allowed to read the Bible." <laughs> it's a good story. We'll get to that next week. So. Again, this is groundbreaking. It's done under a bit of duress and, and hurry because he's always on the move, fearful for his life. Um, probably about 5,000 copies were printed. And in the epilogue to this first edition of the New Testament, Tyndale knows that there's a lot of improvement to be done. He knows that the syntax, the grammar, there's still work to be done. He knows there's some errors, but he had to do it quickly. And so he writes to the reader, know that I know there's some issues, but I'm going to fix them. Now these get hidden in bales of straw and hay, and they're shipped back into London. And when they get into the ports, remember, there's money. There's money to be made in selling books, especially books that are controversial. So the second they make their way into the hands of the common person, the peasant, the plowboy, the carpenter, they sell immediately. And everyone begins to devour the word of God as they can read it for themselves in English. Now this catches the attention of men like Cuthbert Tunstall who said, you are forbidden to translate this, the Bible into English. And here comes Tyndale's Bible in English into London. So T Cuthbert Tunstall is furious. And in 1526, October of this year, he preaches a famous sermon, and we're going to talk more about that again next week, where he condemns Tyndale's Bible. He says there's 2,000 heretical errors in it, and they pile up all the books they can get, and they burn them in front of St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, when you burn the Bible, when people are actually able to read the Bible, it kind of does the opposite effect. 
If anything, it spurred on and it fanned the flame of wanting to read the Bible in English. So after 1526, and this first edition of the Bible, he has now mastered Greek, and there is a first printed and published New Testament. Tyndale goes to take on the Old Testament. And to do so, he has to learn Hebrew. Now what is amazing about this story, and again, because Tyndale is a scholar, that you have to understand, zero people in England spoke Hebrew or even knew Hebrew. I've read numerous books. There are maybe a couple professors that had an idea of what Hebrew was. But the average Englishman and woman didn't even know the language existed. And if you even knew the language existed, you had no clue that it had anything to do with the Bible. There has been nothing ever at this point in time translated from Hebrew into English. Ever. Zero. So he really goes to take on a monumental task. And he goes in hiding and he studies for five years and he learns Hebrew. And there's another romantic version that he spends a year with uh, Luther again. <laughs> These things keep popping up. <laughs> Trying to make the connection that he spends time with Luther. Probably didn't happen. What's more likely is he spent time with a Jewish rabbi and learned Hebrew. Because there was a Jewish population in, in Germany. So nonetheless, he learns the Hebrew language and he masters it. And so he begins to translate the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. And so he moves from Germany into the Netherlands to the town of Antwerp. Learn to let this delay go. And in 1530, he's able to publish and print the first five books, known as the Pentateuch, into uh, English. Now what's, again, amazing about this is you have to understand, not only is this the first time the, uh, anything of the Old Testament had been printed in English, it's the first time anything had ever been translated from the language of Hebrew to the language of English. It's groundbreaking. It's historic. And so... Many of the phrases or the, the words that we're familiar with today that have persisted for over 2,000 years were words that William Tyndale himself invented and coined, such as Jehovah, the name for God in the Old Testament, Jehovah, Passover, scapegoat, showbread, mercy seat. Tyndale invented these words never before in the English language so that the, his reader could understand them. Now the atonement, this word had been in existence. In Tyndale's study, he had found this word, but it was a word that nobody used. And it probably was pronounced at one mint. At one mint, meaning that God in this sacrifice was at one with man. And so Tyndale took this word and he put it into the Bible in the Old Testament with the priests in the Day of Atonement, at one mint or atonement. Also, many of the most wonderful and beautiful verses that we think of to this day that we still could recite come from Tyndale. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Tyndale translated that. If you look at Wycliffe's version from Middle English, you can understand it, but it doesn't have the rhythm and beauty. It says, in the beginning, God made of naught, hewn, and earth. So, eh, it's okay. 
But created is better than of not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How about the Lord bless you and keep you? Let there be light. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These are all verses that Tyndale translated first himself. And he said here that the properties of the Hebrew tongue agreeeth a thousand times greater with English than that of Latin. So in Tyndale's estimation of the Hebrew, it was a far better language to translate directly from into English. Again, one reason why when you translate from one language to another and then use that as the basis, you're going to miss and not capture the beauty often of the language. Now, after this, in 1531, Tyndale um, did translate the book of Jonah. And we don't quite know why he chose Jonah. Some have speculated that it probably was he saw, because he saw himself like the prophet Jonah, not that he was running or fleeing from God, but that he was a prophet sent to a distant land so that he could do God's work and bring repentance to the people. So he translated Jonah, and then sometime after that, he translated Joshua to 2 Chronicles. However, Joshua through 2 Chronicles do not exist in any um, Bible, but next week, and I'm going to wrap it up here, we're going to see that a lot of Tyndale's books that were never printed actually make their way into future editions of the English Bible, like Joshua through 2 Chronicles. I'm going to hit this slide, and that'll probably be it for the day. So now, a decade later, after Tyndale has left his homeland and has been on the continent of Europe, his Greek is razor sharp. He's mastered the Hebrew language. Now it is time to revise his 1526 New Testament. So he sets forth to correct all those errors and issues, four or 5,000 of them. And he, hits, uh, he, he, he publishes and prints in 1534 his first or second edition. Now we need to understand that this 1534 edition of the New Testament is epic. Again, it's groundbreaking. The language now. Um, he has mastered everything and he's able to put into print something wonderful. And really this 1534 version of the Bible is really the cornerstone for all future translations. So when we read the ESV or whatever version you read, you have to know and understand and appreciate it all rests on the shoulders of William Tyndale and the 1534. Because again, the King James Version, 80% of the New Testament comes from this 1534 edition. So again, this is a man who is worthy of knowing because of what he has done. Then in 1535, he's able to uh, put together another edition. And both of these Bibles sell out immediately as they're smuggled back into England. Now the 1535 edition is able to be printed in a 6 by 4 by 1.5 small stout pocket version that's easily uh, able to be hidden and smuggled and contained. And when he said uh, that the plowboy will know more of the scripture than you to that clergyman, that's exactly what is happening the average person, the blue-collar worker, is able to absorb and digest the Bible in their own language. I am going to pause now here and uh, maybe like two or three minutes for questions. Yes.
Yeah, wow, that would be pretty cool if he did, but no, he didn't. So it would have been the publisher, and the publisher would have had probably an artist. So the Latin Bibles that were done, in like the Roman Catholic Bibles, they would hire like a monk usually, and the monk would like illustrate. Some of the Bibles are amazing with the artwork, and it's all hand-drawn. So that would have been illustrated and hand-drawn, but not by Tyndale, but by the publisher and printer. Good question. Yeah. Very limited. Many didn't know how to read. Yeah, some, some did. It, it, um, some didn't. Some did. But one of the things that Tyndale did, and we'll look at this next week, is he translated the Bible into English for the, pl- the plowboy, not the professor. That was specific. So I always like to say, you know, the more formal a Bible translation doesn't necessarily make it better as long as it's accurate. He translated so he would keep the author's intent intact, but that the common person could understand the Bible. That was his motive and aim. And that's really why the Bible, the King James Version, which draws from Tyndale, is so beautiful in rhyme and rhythm because he really wrote it translated it, sorry, I didn't write the book, he translated it so that the common plowboy could understand it. Things like a city set on a hill, no one can serve two masters. He, those come from the average life of an English man or woman. He used the average life of what his countrymen would have been living and the language and what was happening to translate the Bible and to put that into print. Great question. How about one, maybe one more? Yeah. 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 Um, possibly. Yeah, and, and others did come to blows. A man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, who is the, the main reformer in Switzerland, almost came to blows. I would say Luther almost came to blows with Zwingli over this main issue. They met once um, in a castle to try to talk through these issues, and he was firm. Luther, no, this is my body, means it physically is the body of Jesus. And so Zwingli left in tears that the two could not be reconciled and join Switzerland and Germany at that time. So possibly Luther, excuse me, uh, Tyndale may have had, you know, issue with trans, well he did, but with Luther's version of the real presence of Christ or consubstantiation. All right. Well, hey, thank you for being here. I would invite you to come back next week and we get to hear the end of the story through Tyndale's martyrdom and death and then the the three or four important Bibles that followed his work. Um, So that's what we'll talk about next week. So let me pray quickly and we'll, we'll be done. God, thank you for the word of God. We thank you that scripture alone is enough for us to know Christ and to know him crucified and to be saved. And we thank you for men like William Tyndale who paid the ultimate price so that his fellow countrymen and women could know Jesus Christ. And we thank you today that when we read the Bible, we know that men like Tyndale were instrumental in helping us have a Bible that we can love and enjoy and cherish. So we thank you. We thank you for men like him, men of the faith. And now we pray for church that you would 
meet with us in power and your spirit would be poured out. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.